Shoreshine Podcast, shining a light to the nations. Hello again, everyone. I'm Bill Cloud, and this program is called Returning to Our Roots, and we're glad that you're joining us today. Hopefully, you've been tuning in to the previous programs. We've been talking about the days of Noah as it relates to the last kingdom of man and, and all the events that are kind of bringing us to the culmination of history. And the last program, we were talking about the ramifications of coexistence, what it means for God's people when they decide to abandon God's rules and embrace man's rules and try to blend them together. There are always ramifications of that, and we, we kind of went through the details of that. And so the days of Noah really are days when corruption is taking place and mixing and mingling of ideologies and and, and all these kinds of things are taking place. And the effects had not just, um, well, the effects were not just for people, but the people's corruption actually affected the entire earth. In fact, in Genesis 6, verse 12, it tells us this, that all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth, and that the corruption of all flesh led to the corruption of the earth itself. And so I recommend to you that that is exactly what the adversary has always had in mind. That's why he sows tares in the midst of the wheat. Because he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to deceive the whole world because he wants to destroy the world. He wants to destroy God's purposes. The adversary is aggressive, and so he's never going to be content with just having a field of tares. No. He's going to take from those tares and he's going to sow them in the field that is wheat. And in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the field is the world. So he sowed those tares. He wanted to mix those other things in with what was pure, ultimately to destroy the field, if you will, to destroy the world. And so in Genesis 6, through his methodologies and, and the way he he presents himself as an angel of light. He's very shrewd. He's very subtle. He's very crafty and clever. Well, he seduces the sons of God to mixing and mingling. This leads to all kinds of evil thoughts, evil intentions, corruption. And he almost succeeded in what he was trying to do, except for this, that the Creator has always had a remnant, a righteous seed that holds out and holds fast to God and to His ways. And in the days leading up to the flood, of course, that remnant was Noah. And so in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8 and 9, it tells us this. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, when it says that he was a just man. The word there is tzaddik. And tzaddik in Hebrew means righteous. He was a righteous man. What is righteous? What does righteousness mean? It's doing what's right. How do we know what's right? God's word tells us what is right. God's word tells us what is holy. It tells us what's profane. It tells us what's clean, what's unclean, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. Well, how could Noah be righteous if there was no word of God in his day? Well, the actual uh, reality of this is there was the word of God in his day. It wasn't written down the way you and I have it, but the word of God is eternal. It always has been. It always will be in the beginning. 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word of God has always been, it will always be, and His people from the very beginning have always been instructed in His ways how to walk. Noah walked with God. And if Noah walked with God, that is telling us that he walked the way God wanted his people to walk. Therefore, he is Zadik. He is a righteous man. And it also says that he was perfect in his generations. The term perfect is tamim. And we've talked about this term before, but once again, it means undefiled, unpolluted, acceptable. It was, uh, it's, it's telling us that Noah, not that he never made a mistake, because there's none righteous, no, not one. It's telling us that Noah didn't mix and mingle like the other sons of God did. He didn't contaminate himself by mixing with the beautiful daughters of men. So he was acceptable in the eyes of the Lord because he had not polluted himself in this way. He had not profaned himself in this way. Again, it doesn't mean he didn't make a mistake. It means that he didn't coexist. That's what it means. This word tamim is the same Hebrew term that is used when describing sacrificial animals. Those animals that couldn't be maimed, that couldn't be diseased, that had to be perfect before they're brought and presented to God as a sacrifice. That's the concept. And this, by the way, is the same thing that Paul tries to convey to us in Romans chapter 12. Let's read that, beginning at verse 1. Paul tells us, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, that is, set apart, acceptable to God, which would be the same as tamim, undefiled, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what is Paul telling us? That, number one, it is our reasonable service to present ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice. Just like those animals that were brought as sacrifices in the days of the temple, they had to be without blemish. They had to be without spot. They couldn't be imp- uh, have any imperfections in that. They had broken bones. They weren't an acceptable sacrifice. So Paul is saying that the believer needs to present himself as that acceptable sacrifice. That's your reasonable service, which goes back to the idea of being tamim, perfect in his generations. Not that we haven't made mistakes because we know we all have. But we are to, once being born again, the mercies of God made that possible, that we are to live a life that is holy, that is set apart, not coexisting, that is acceptable, that is not coexisting unto the Lord. That's our reasonable service. So that's the the imagery that Paul is trying to portray to us. We're to be, if you will, like Noah was in his generations not mixing and mingling. In fact, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. That word conformed, the raw meaning of it is to twist. The concept would be if you take two strands of some kind of thread and one is blue and one is white and you're going to twist them together so that they coexist. Paul says, no, don't be conformed Don't be twisted 
in mixing with the world and the world's ideas and ideals and philosophies. No. But be transformed, he says. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you recall in previous programs, we've talked about the fact that Babylon, more than a place, more than a nation, more than an archaeological site, is a mindset. It's a way of thinking. And that way of thinking, according to Revelation 17, it permeates the entire earth in the end of days. And what is that Babylonian mindset? It's mixing. It's coexistence. Paul says that our minds need to be transformed. We need to stop thinking like the world. If the world says that coexistence is a good thing, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and quit thinking the the way the world thinks and start thinking the way that God says. And God says to His people, through Paul in this case, be acceptable, be tamim, be kadosh, be set apart, be holy. That's your reasonable service. That's what you're supposed to do as his people. So now, bringing it back to Noah, it says that he was tamim, he was perfect in his generations. We will presume that what that is to say is that Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his three sons, did not do as the other sons of God in Genesis 6 did. They did not take these beautiful daughters of men from these corrupt families, but they kept that lineage pure. They didn't mix and mingle the, the holy and the profane and the ideologies and the wickedness and the idolatry with the things of God. They remained set apart in that fashion. They didn't mingle righteous and profane. So again, Noah is the picture of that remnant that set-apart people, that pure seed. And not only is he setting himself apart in his, in his thoughts, in his actions, not only is he walking with God, but it also says, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that he's preaching righteousness. He's not only walking it, he's sharing it too. Who is he sharing it with? All of those people who are mixing and mingling. In, in my mind... And, and I'm not saying this is the way it was, definitely. But here's what I think. He's probably preaching righteousness to those who should have known better. You know, the world does what the world does. And, and mostly because they're ignorant of what God says. But when you've got the sons of God, those who should have known better, mixing and mingling, my guess is those are the people that Noah really is focusing his preaching toward. He was a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher of doing what is right, what is holy, what is acceptable unto the Lord. So now, here's what we learn. And the importance of there being a remnant. His detachment from this coexistent mindset of the sons of God mingling with the daughters of men, evil intentions, wickedness being carried out, corrupting the earth. His detachment from that, even though he was in the world, And the world was corrupt. He was set apart from the world. And here's what that does. It saves the human race. You see, you and I owe thanks to Noah that he was set apart. You and I owe thanks to Noah that he did not coexist. Because had he decided to give in and coexist with everybody else, along with everybody else, then we could presume 
there would be no human race. So his obedience not only affected him and his family, but his obedience had far-reaching ramifications for people that he would never meet, for generations that he would never see, including you and me. So consider that. Just how important it was that this man was set apart and refused to coexist. You know, it says he was a preacher of righteousness, and, and when you look at how an effective how effective a preacher he was, well, if you look at the short-term results, you'd have to say wasn't very effective at all. Only his family ends up getting on the ark with him. But again, because of that, he saves the human race. You and I are here today in part thanks to Noah and his obedience. So how effective was he really? His determination and commitment to be tamim, to be holy, to be acceptable, to be undefiled, had far-reaching ramifications and factored very prominently into God's purposes. You see, God can do whatever He wants to do, but God has chosen to work through people. And from the beginning of time, He has always had a remnant and has chosen to work through that remnant if they would commit themselves to being set apart, if they would commit themselves to standing up for what is right in spite of of everything that's going on around them. Think of this. If Noah had given in and decided to coexist, and presumably the human race is destroyed, then the adversary wins. And the promise that God had made in the garden of a redeemer, the seed of the woman, could have never come to pass if Noah had decided to coexist. If Noah gives in, the adversary wins. Of course, that was never going to happen. God always has a remnant. Why is this pertinent to you and to me? Because the Messiah said the days of his coming are like the days of Noah. Men were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, coexisting, mixing, mingling. But there's also that remnant that didn't give in to this, that resisted it. And so, if you and I are living in the last days, if we are living in the days of Noah, that is suggesting, I think, more than what meets the eye. When Messiah likens the days of His coming, and He says those things that we quoted, there's a hint in there. There's things that are being alluded to, that there is going to be, in the days before His coming, a righteous remnant. A people that will not give in to the coexistent mindset, but yet will have their minds transformed, their minds renewed. They're, they're going to commit themselves to being pure and set apart from that Babylonian mindset. That's not to say they won't make mistakes. They will and have. But they, they understand the mercies of God. And they're committing themselves to being a set-apart people. You see, once again, the days of Noah are not the flood. The flood is the consequence of the days of Noah. And in the days of Noah, we, we see this unprecedented mingling and mixture and corruption. Here's what Messiah said of those days, just before His coming in Matthew chapter 24. He says, For then... There will be great tribulation such has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved but for the elect's, for the elect's sake. 
those days will be shortened. And so what Messiah is describing for us is the days under the dominion of this last kingdom, that kingdom that Daniel described for Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, that one that is personified as being two feet with the ten toes, iron mixed with clay. It's a mixed kingdom. And so at that day and time, there's going to be great tribulation. And God's people are, to some degree, going to be under the heel of the adversary. He's going to try to stamp out God's people and destroy them outright. But there's always a righteous remnant. How is he going to garner this dominion? Well, we have to remember that the adversary is very subtle, he's very shrewd, he's very crafty, he's very clever, because what he wants to do is he wants to seduce the sons of God, not only in Genesis 6, but at the end of days. He wants to seduce the righteous seed into mingling with the other seed. Because if he can do that, if he can suck us into a coexistent mindset, then he can destroy us. We'll end up doing to ourselves what he doesn't have the authority to do if we'll just give in and coexist. Look, the mark of the beast, I will predict, is not going to be a 666. The drunkest drunk, the guy strung out on drugs, the prostitute, they all know to look out for a 666. It's not going to be that obvious and it's not going to be that blatant. It's going to be very subtle. It's going to be very shrewd. It's going to appear to be good, it's going to appear to be noble, but it's going to be in concert with the Babylonian mindset. And so, when these things begin to take shape in the earth, there will be a righteous remnant. And when that righteous remnant stands up and says, no, I'm not going to coexist, then watch, you will see the true nature of the beast exposed for all the world to see. It will be when the righteous remnant stands up and says no. Because what the beast is going to do, according to the pattern that we have in the scripture, is he's going to set up an image. Nebuchadnezzar set up an image of gold because he was told in Daniel chapter 2, verse 38, that he was the head of gold. And so in Daniel chapter 3, what did he do? He had a golden image, not just the head, but the entire image set up entirely of gold, an image of himself. And he commanded all the administrators and officials and prominent people to come to the plain of Dura and to bow down, to give in and bow down to the image. But there was resistance there. There was a remnant there who resisted and not with bullets and bombs, not with protests and placards. But the resistance was that they just refused to give in. They refused to bow to that image. Let me read to you from Daniel chapter 3, beginning verse 4. It says, Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, You shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. So here's the picture. You've got all of these men gathered on the plain of Dur and they hold all these different positions, some greater, some smaller. But here they all are. And they've been brought to this place to pay homage to an image to the king of Babylon. 
and with beautiful music playing in the background. Sounds so nice, so appealing, so comforting, seems good. When they hear the music play, they are to bow down and worship the image, which to me, this sounds very, very familiar to what we see happening in Revelation chapter 13 when the false prophet erects an image unto the beast and everybody's commanded to worship the image of the beast under the penalty of death, just like it was in Daniel chapter 3 in the plain of Dura. But what we see in Daniel 3 is that there is a remnant. There is always that righteous remnant. There are always those people that regardless of what's going on around them and in spite of what everybody else may be doing, they're going to stand for what is right. They're going to stand for what is holy regardless of the consequence. And in Daniel 3, we see that remnant. Now, the names that most people know these guys by is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But actually, their Hebrew names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so these three men who resist this mentality, this Babylonian mindset, they don't resist by trying to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. They don't resist through the ballot box. They don't resist through violence. That's not how they resist. Here's how they resist. Under the threat of death, they stand. When everyone else is bowing, they stand. You know, we're told that when you've done all you can do to stand, stand. And they're simply standing there, sent a message to everybody else around them. Noah, standing in his day, preached righteousness. Nobody listened. But nonetheless, God had a remnant that even if the people of Noah's day weren't listening, you and I need to be listening. And the same is true for Hananiah, Mashal, and Azariah. Under the threat of death, they stood. And then they're hauled before the king. And here's what they say to the king in Daniel chapter 3. It says that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. He's compelling them to bow to the image or die. He says, If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, even if he doesn't do that, even if he doesn't deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. In Bill's translation, here's what they're saying. King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the rightful king. God has raised you up. He's given you authority. And we're here in your kingdom, subject to you. And we've followed your laws and we've kept your precepts. And as a matter of fact, we've served in the capacity to help you run your kingdom. But now you have passed a law that would require us to break a higher law. The laws of this government would require us to negate the laws of our God. And we cannot do that. We will not do that. We have striven to be good citizens. But if you're going to compel us to choose between your laws and God's laws, we're going to have to choose God's laws because there comes a time when you have to obey God rather than man. We will not coexist. We will not embrace 
that mentality and that mindset because it leads to worshiping other gods. To mingle holy with profane, we cannot and we will not do. And so then, there is the example, once again, that God always has a righteous remnant. And by the way, like Noah, they were left behind in the sense that they were spared from the fiery furnace. And so, in the end of days, we see, according to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Messiah speaks to a congregation called Philadelphia, the congregation of brotherly love. And he tells them that because you've kept my word, you haven't denied my name, you haven't denied my authority. And even though you are, you're weak in, in, in the sense that you're, you're, you're tired and you've been beaten down, you have little strength, he says. Nevertheless, you have persevered. You have sought to overcome. And so Messiah tells that congregation who have, who's kept his word, who's been true to his word, who's been set apart, who's been perfect in their generations, so to speak, who is that righteous remnant. He says that I will keep you in the hour of testing that's coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Literally, I will guard you. He's speaking to a congregation that was on the earth 2,000 years ago, but I believe that his message is speaking to this people today. That if we're going to be a Laodicean congregation, we're going to be a mixed and mingled congregation. And the consequences of that are not good. But the congregation that keeps my word, that doesn't deny my name, that perseveres in spite of what's going on around them as a reward, I will keep you from the hour of testing that's coming upon the whole world. And he went on to say that I will make you pillars in the house of my God. When everybody's walking around looking for something secure, they're going to see those people. Come back and join us next week. We'll continue talking about the days of Noah. Shalom. Like what you're hearing? Become a Bill Cloud Premium Partner to watch or listen to hundreds of hours of teachings and resources on demand. Go to BillCloud.com slash subscribe to start watching today.